Hello once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, coming at you with another episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. And this is a show we've been wanting to do for a while. And unfortunately, it is another posthumous show because uh, this this man, uh, the legendary Dick Byer, passed away last month. But we've been meaning to do a show about him for a while, so no better time than the present. And before I introduce my usual co-host... I just want to thank everybody that's listened to us for the past two years. Uh, the release of this show actually happens on the two-year anniversary of the first Classic Wrestling Memories. We first started going on the airwaves in May of 2017, and now 28 episodes later, uh, we're still here. And when we talked about this, we were talking about doing it maybe every month, every few weeks or so. And now on the two-year anniversary, we are on episode 28. So Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock, any, any uh, things you wanted to share at least as far as the last two years? Uh, all aboard, ladies and gentlemen. It's It's been a fun ride. I want to keep it going. And we're, we're kind of hitting our mark, aren't we? we? We said, like I said, every three weeks to a month and 28 episodes in two years. That's right on target. Right, right. Absolutely. I just wish we would get a chance to do some of these profiles before we have to do these <laughs> yeah. posthumous. Sadly, 20 of the 28 episodes, about what, a half a dozen or so have been tributes to guys we've lost, like that we'll be doing tonight with Dick Beyer. I, Bobby Brain Heenan was like that. Gene Okerlund. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, and, and, you know, you know, uh, the Grim Reaper has a, he is, he's like the Undertaker streak before it got broken. It, it ain't been broken. You know, ain't nobody kicked yeah. out of that one yet. Just yeah, is but, what it is. But I think you can go back because I'm pretty sure we talked about it on the air yeah, in our first year or, or two about we wanted to do shows about Brain and, and Mean Gene and all that. And then, right. you know, lo and behold, a couple weeks later, a couple months later or so, away. you know, something happens. Yeah. Now, this episode here, Dick Beyer, this is one of the shows that I enjoy and look forward to as a fan because obviously his biggest days in the ring were before either of our times. You know, this isn't like somebody such as, I'd use a modern example, you know, maybe somebody like like, like a Hogan or even more recent The Rock or somebody like that, where he, their best stuff is easy to find because there's collections and uh, fan sites and all that stuff. The Destroyer Dick Buyer, I mean, he had already pretty much retired by the time either of us were born. I mean, is that is that fair to say, Train? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I pretty much... My first memories of even hearing the name were were not the Aptor Mags, which is unusual. Right. Uh, they were in the late '80s when I first started subscribing to the Wrestling Observer, and and Meltzer was very obvious from his writing, quite a fan. You know, spoke highly. And as we go along and we talk about Dick's importance in Japanese pro wrestling and in its development in that country, makes sense if you know Dave's love and passion for the Japanese wrestling scene. So it kind of all made sense, you know, uh, once I thought about it. Um, right. But I mean, he was never being a Southern based guy. I, I, I don't ever remember hearing any of the, of the old timey fans or vets of him having a run around here. So this is an unusual territory for me. Uh, most of most of our listeners know when we do these shows. I usually have a few anecdotal uh, stories to pass along, you know, some more than others, depending on how much I interacted with 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 the individual. Never had inter- I think I think I didn't meet him, but I saw him one time. At a convention, you know, <laughs> and I can't even remember if this convention was when I was a fan or while I was at the convention as a wrestler. So, yeah, it, it's I just remember a lot of articles about him in the Observer and, and doing a little bit of research on my own way back in the day. 
but uh, what I read, I was always very impressed. Yeah, and I remember Mike Tanay had said this about Dick Byer because I mean, Mike Tanay is be the first person to tell you that the destroyer Dick Byer was his favorite wrestler. And he had also said, after he had grown up and got to meet the man a few times, Tanay had said, anybody who said you don't want to meet your heroes has never met Dick Byer because you know he met or exceeded expectations. And the, the, the funny thing about that, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into his careers both as babyface and heel, but correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of the time, even as a, the Destroyer, he was a heel. You know, he had that, the whole the- bit of nobody could break his holds, nobody could unmask him, and, 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 st- and he was the, you know, this, this amazing athlete, nobody could touch him, and then if something did happen, he'd come up with an excuse as to why, why that didn't count. Right, I think that's always been my understanding is that he was a heel, and kind of makes sense because outside of Lucha Libre, most masked wrestlers were heels back in the day. I mean, I guess the first masked wrestler I can remember being a babyface would probably have been wrestling one or two. Okay, or we yeah. had a, uh, we had a, we had a guy here in the, in, in the Carolinas called Sweet Ebony Brown who was was Rocky Johnson under a hood. Um, those are the only ones I can think of that were babyface masked wrestlers. So, I mean. Really, think if you think about it today, how many mass wrestlers outside of Luchadors are baby faces? There, first of all, there's not a lot of mass wrestlers to begin with. But the right. ones that are, what Jushin Liger, Rey Mysterio, and they're both not American, <laughs> right? Right. You know, so Tiger, Dragon Lee, yeah, Tiger yeah. Mask. You know, yeah, yeah. Tiger. That's, there's not many. There's not right. many. And even so. in cases like Mysterio or Liger, it's because of the persona. You know. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. think part of it may have been WCW. I don't want to pass blame on it, but it's also just a modern thing. You don't have to go too far to see pictures of Mysterio unmasked. I mean, it's no secret right, what, right. what he looks like, but that's probably just because the times are different. Back well, in these that, days... He had, that run, he had that run with the filthy animals where they took his mask off. Right, you know, right so. exactly. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit about, uh, about mask wrestlers and titles uh, as we go on, but back in those days... Wearing a mask was certainly a good way to protect identity. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, Mike Tanay would tell the stories about how when they'd be driving someplace and they'd make sure they would get a couple blocks, possibly a, a half a mile away from where the matches would take place. And Dick Byer would look one way, look the other, and then slowly take the mask off because, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were in safe territory. And that was that was that was part of kayfabe for years. Of course, our listeners know I'm friends with Bill Eady, who's probably most well-known to our listeners as Demolition Axe, mm-hmm. but was a star for years before that as the mass Superstar. And, and that I was also as a baby face, right? Yeah. And a heel. Did okay. both. He worked okay. both ways. But Bill, you know, I, Bill would sometimes be booked as the mass Superstar. And, I, you know, I remember him walking in the locker room with his mask on. I remember him, you know, taking it off as soon as he got in. He'd put it back on before he'd leave. I mean, in street clothes, you know, he'd be on a golf shirt and, you know, nice pair of pants. And he put the mask on. And I asked him one time, I said, when do you take that mask off, Bill? He said, oh, about five, ten miles down the road when I get out of town. <laughs> so that was just, that, I mean, that was just part and parcel for masked wrestlers of that era. You know, and, and of course, Bill was after dick buyer but it was guys like dick buyer that kind of laid that groundwork for that's what you did i did ask him one time did he ever get pulled over and he said yeah that was interesting and he just left it at that (laughs) 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 well nowadays you can buy you know masks at at hot topic so a cop pulling over somebody in a wrestling mask is going to think it's it's some young punk kid but back then 
and you know, Dick Byer was not a small man. Bill Eadie's not a small man. You're probably wondering why you're pulling over this 300 pound behemoth of a man wearing a mask as he's driving down the road at 11 o'clock at night. But you know, right. I digress. <laughs> but back to Dick Byer. He was born July 11th, 1930, in Buffalo, New York, and very famously attended college in Syracuse University. He did do amateur wrestling there. He was a varsity football player. He co-captained the Syracuse Orangemen football team in 1952 and played in the Orange Bowl of that year. Now, uh, just for my clarity, more more than anything, because college football was never something I truly got into. The Orange Bowl, that's like top divisions or, or it's, it's right, teams right. In, in a specific division? Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in that era, you had what they, they called the, 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 the four big bowls. And they've kind of worked the playoff system we have today, in, incorporated those bowls into them. But the four original big bowls were the Rose Bowl in Anaheim, California, the Cotton Bowl, which was in Dallas, where the famous, you know, where, where, where Flair lost the title to Kerry, same building. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the um, Rose sugar? Cotton Sugar Bowl in mm-hmm. New Orleans at the Superdome and the Orange Bowl in Miami where the Dolphins played. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a big and 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 if you're if he he was at Syracuse in '52, he would have been there either at the same time or right before Jim Brown was yes. at Syracuse. Yeah, because so, yeah, he was. That should tell you something <laughs> about yeah. Syracuse's football program back then. Right, it, he, that was one of the things I had realized in, in my research that he was essentially the co-captain and I think coach for Jim Brown, and he very well could be considered if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest running backs in history. Now, obviously, I am, of course, biased. I would plead right. the case for Walter Payton being the greatest running back of all I, well, time. I but, mean, you're, you from know, Chica- you're from yeah. Chicago, so I understand. <laughs> but yes, Jim Brown is in that discussion. Right. Well, 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 don't worry. Walter Payton is too, don't worry. <laughs> right, right. But I, in fact, I would, I would dare say 97, 98% of any football fan you ask who's the greatest running back, you're only going to get three names, Jim Brown, Walter Payton or Emmett Smith. That's the only answer you're ever going to get. Maybe Barry <laughs> right. Sanders. I'd throw Barry Sanders in there too. Those are the only okay. answers you're going to get. So right. yeah, there you go. And, and and like I, so he was a teammate of Jim Brown's at Syracuse. Is that what right. your research? Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, Jim was Jim was a multi multi sport star, just like Dick was. Dick, like you said, swam on the swimming team and played and wrestled. Jim was also the captain of their lacrosse team too. Okay. Sports sports was a little different back then. You were I know because I was at the tail end of that era where if you were an athlete, you played sports year round. You just played different sports. It isn't like today where in high school they're like, oh, you're going to be a basketball player, and that's all that kid does. Right. You know. Right. You stop playing baseball and go home during the winter. You know. Yeah. Well, right. Right. When no, it no, comes no, along, yeah. you switch to football. You know. Right. That, yeah, and that's what I did. Well, Dick Byer and those guys, but that's what they were doing back then. I mean, times have changed. Don't get me off on a diatribe about that because I'm an old crotchety curmudgeon will come out then. My bath inside of me. Well, back in my day, <laughs> that's my Tony Gurria. Yeah, not only was Dick a star sport and uh, just this excellent athlete, he got his degree in education. So he was planning his life to essentially be a teacher, which he was when he wasn't wrestling. Uh, he began what would become a 40-year pro wrestling career in 1954. Now, I wasn't able to find really how he first got hired for pro wrestling, but right in that area, I mean, New York, you know, obviously there probably would be people that would have feelers for uh, Vince Sr. or, well, actually before Vince Sr., this would be probably, you know, before Capital, but... Probably Jess, um, probably probably Vince's granddad, or or, or where he was at Syracuse, that's probably the Tunnies. 
because that's right, okay. right next door to Buffalo, you know? Right. right and I that. would I would bet with his amateur background, because he was, I believe, a, a, ch- a champion wrestler at Syracuse, right? Is that what your research is? I think so, you? yeah. Yeah, because he, he, he had actually won, like, athlete of the year a couple times, like, in, in different sports, both in football and, and in wrestling. Before at the same pro. school, that, at the same school that Jim Brown went to. Wow! Right. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, you know, uh, I, I think uh, you and me were talking about this as we were prepping. Dick Byer has always struck me based on the records I've seen and 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 what I know about his career. And I, he's not the only wrestler I put into this category. Other names that I would throw into this category would be uh, Danny Hodge. Uh, I would throw Jack Briscoe in this and and Jerry Briscoe in this. Uh, more modern examples might even be uh, I don't know. Uh, I can't think of any right off the top of my head, but these were guys that the UFC MMA did not exist in their era, but had it, we'd have never heard of them as pro wrestlers. They would have, right. they would have gravitated towards that. Right. Right. Billy you know, Robinson, and, Gene LaBelle, you know, yeah, Gene LaBelle's another, yeah. Bob Roop, you know, maybe a, a little more current and you got to understand that promoters, we've talked about this before wrestlers back then, not all of them, but a lot of the wrestlers back then did have legitimate shooter type backgrounds who could handle themselves whether they be a shooter like 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 uh, like you know uh, or hooker like dick buyer or they were just a brawl room brawler like harley they were yeah. guys that could take care of themselves yeah or or another that, hooker example would be Stu hart mm-hmm. or, or dory funk senior the, yeah mm-hmm. these are the kind of guy yeah so it, it's those were the kind of guys that were much more prevalent in that era and were necessary because of double crosses because of kayfabe in general, you know, we've talked about it many times. What was the one thing you could not do if you weren't for Bill Watts in Mid-South Territory? Lose a bar fight. <laughs> right. Whether you were a good <laughs> you guy were or gone. a bad guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were gone. I mean, it, that's how serious kayfabe was. Well, a guy like Dick Byer, who was a big man, a legitimate world-class athlete with an amateur wrestling background, don't think that was going to be much of a problem for him, you know? Right, right. And I think you can see if somebody wanted to get a little um what's the word uncooperative in the ring he's probably not the guy to do it against that was just the kind of guy you had back then right you know sadly in, in my opinion my opinion sadly we don't have a lot of guys like that in the business anymore but you know right that, that i think it's just one of those things that kind of changes over the years you know i'm not saying that is a good or bad thing it's just it, it's just how things are or different. Well, not yeah, not change the topic, but I think I've said this before. Let get on my soapbox a little bit. Whether you like them or not, there's a reason Ronda Rousey and, and Brock Lesnar were so popular in the past few years because everybody knows they have legit backgrounds. And and as much as the fans say it's about entertainment, they really want to be able to spin disbelief, and it's really easier to do when you got two people like Ronda Rousey and Brock Lesnar. You know, can legitimately kick some butt, right? Right, right. And especially somebody like Ronda who was not afraid to play the villain. You know. Yep. Yep, exactly. Right. So there you go. I mean, right. that you got to think Brock Lesnar, as awesome as he is, he was the standard in Dick Byers' era. He wasn't the exception that he is now. Legitimate right. tough guys were the norm back then. Right. Now, in wrestling, one of the first territories he worked was Hawaii. And he worked with and trained a then young Harry Fujiwara, who, of course, would go on to become Mr. Fuji in WWE Hall of Famer and such. And. This story, this is one of those things, I think if they ever were to make the life of Dick Byer into a movie or special or or whatever, Netflix series, this is the type of thing I could totally see happening within about a two to five minute uh, sequence. Because while 
Dick Byer was wrestling in Hawaii. He hadn't put on the mask yet. He was just Dick Byer. He was an athletic baby face, would wear the proudly the college colors and all that. And Freddie Blassie came to Hawaii, and Blassie was the top heel in the California WWA, the Worldwide Wrestling Associates. And so here he is in, in California, goes and attends an event in Hawaii, sees Dick Byer wrestle, and then upon getting back into the mainland, he calls up Jewel Strongbow and says, I think I've just seen the, the greatest babyface in the world. And flash forward a couple months, maybe a year, Blassie goes back to Hawaii, sees another match with Dick Byer, only now he's turned heel and he's going against the babyface uh, Neff Maivia, you know, of that same Maivia uh, uh and a, and family. a Hawaii family line? Yes, yeah. yes. And now he's seeing Dick Byer as a heel, and he goes back uh, to the mainland, calls up Jewel Strongbow, and says, I think I've just seen the greatest heel in our country. <laughs> so, and, that's, and, that, and that's coming from the guy who probably was the current greatest heel in the country at the time, because that's right. where Freddie Blassie stood at that point. So. <laughs> right, and just wow. kind of that thing of, you know, like the, like the first uh, uh, Pirates movie with, with Johnny Depp, where it goes like, he's the dumbest pirate I've ever seen, and then... 90, 90 seconds later, he's the greatest pirate I've ever seen. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the keeping the wrestling world when Pat Patterson went down to Florida to see The Rock, like uh, basically audition for the WWF, goes back to his hotel, calls Vince at his house, and Vince said, so what does the kid got? Vince, you want him yesterday, I think was mm-hmm. Pat's direct quote. <laughs> you know, that's that kind of reaction, right? <laughs> right. Now, if that wasn't enough, also present at this match – is a guy we're probably going to say a, a lot about in future episodes, and that's Don Owen, you know, owner and promoter of Pacific Northwest in Portland. And Don Owen actually offered Dick Byer a job when he was done in Hawaii. Then a little while later, when I say a little while, I don't, I'm not saying it was like same day or anything like that. It was probably within a few weeks a few or whatever. Okay. Yeah, a couple months. Yeah. Jewel Strongbow contacts dick and offers him a job in california and this puts dick byer in an awkward spot because he'd previously agreed to work for don owen didn't want to back down from his work but california was probably going to be more money so So. you know he actually contacted don and got the blessing and just basically said he would agree to come to portland when his time in wwe was done because in those days especially as a heel we talked about it going back to some of our earliest episodes as a heel every couple months you you move to another territory and you just kind of cycled around uh you know so within the two years or so you've probably hit all the territories and you're back to the first one right right yeah i I would say i would say that there's probably two two things you need to think about with that story one Show you one how one how good a promoter Don Owen was about understanding talent, because he was patient enough to not get, make it personal and realize I'll wait, I'll just make money when he when he's done in California and gets up here. Mm-hmm. Two, it also lends a lot of credence to many of the stories you hear about Don Owen being one of the straightest shooting, honest promoters in the old days of the NWA when that wasn't necessarily the reputation of most of the NWA territory heads. <laughs> I mean, right. so, uh, you know, but Don did have that, have, have that reputation and that kind of, that kind of is a good story to, um, verify that. Right. right. I, th- I do not think no slam against big Jim Crockett or, you know, uh, Leo McGurk or, or even Dory senior and, in these other, you know, were other territories, not so sure they would have reacted the same had they been in Don Owen's shoes. Just saying. Right. I'm not trying to speak bad about these guys. They'd have been a little upset, I think. Yeah. Don, yeah. 
Yeah, and and but, not you know. to uh, change the subject, just something else about Don Owen. Just it's relevant to the to the subject we're talking here. There's a reason why when Roddy Piper became mm-hmm. a big star in WWE, and even even after working for Crockett, he would still go back to Portland and work shows for Don Owen while he was still un- under contract events. He was able to right. get that type of deal because he respected Don Owen so much because Don Owen helped put him on the map. Yeah, and Roddy's not the only legend that you hear talk. I mean, Raven ra- raves about how great he was to work for. Greg Valentine does the same. Playboy Buddy Rose did. Grappler Lynn Denton. There's a lot of big-time wrestlers that went through Portland, and they have nothing but good things to say about Don Owen. Believe right. me, as a wrestler, that is not very common. When you're talking about promoters, that is right. not a very common thing. The last thing you often hear when associate when you hear the word promoter is honest, good guy, stand up. That is not what you normally heard. <laughs> right? <laughs> you might have heard uh, watch yourself, be careful, or if, if you were going to say anything nice, it would be yeah, kept his word, kept his word most of the time, or good payoff man. That was about all you're going to hear positive. You know, uh, right, so. Right. Now, as far as Jewel Strongbow goes, he was uh, booking and promoting WWA. Now, that Strongbow name, that is also where right. Chief J. Strongbow got, got his name from, but it right. was a little later, right? Right, right. Of course, that was when he got called. We went through that in the Wahoo McDaniel episode, how Joe Scarpa wound up being J. Strongbow. And I believe, I can't remember if Jules was already in New York at the time or if Vince brought him in later to make them a tag team, but they did tag as quote unquote brothers for a while. But that, I mean, that happened all the time. I mean, right. you know, like Ricky Steamboat was Richard Blood, and and he had the Hawaiian look. And Sam Steamboat had been a star in the Minneapolis area. They looked similar, so Ern said, "Okay, you're you're Sam's nephew, or whatever, whatever the relation." I mean, Marty Lundy had never left the state of Georgia. Until he started wrestling, and then all of a sudden he's from Minnesota and he's Arn Anderson, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. It just is what it, it just is what it is. Right. So we have Dick Byer getting hired in WWE, which was legitimately one of the most successful territories. And we're going to mention a few names here during this run that he had in California. But this was where Freddie Blassie was essentially the top heel in, and there was a lot of work in Japan that a lot of these guys, you know, Ricky Dozen had won the title as well in, in WWE, but Dick Byer comes to work here. He's thinking he's going to continue to be this uh, athlete, you know, college educated and all that, because he essentially had the same gimmick, babyface or heel. And I think if you watch anybody's career for a length of time, a modern example might be CM Punk where with, with the straight edge thing, where if he's a babyface, he's like, this is what I do. This, you know, this is what I represent right. when he's a heel. Mm-hmm. He's got the superiority complex. It was a similar thing right. with... Brian. Yeah, yeah. Excellent example. Yeah. You know, and with Dick Byer, he was pushing his education and his athletics. If he was a babyface, yeah, he wore the school colors. He shook hands. I'm proud to be associated. I'm proud of all mm-hmm. my achievements. But if he's a heel, you're not as good of an athlete as, as me. I'm the super intelligent mm-hmm. Dick Byer. I'm smarter than right. you, better than you, The you know, the whole nine yards. Right. You know, yeah, I, I, to keep the the CM Punk and Daniel Bryan are great examples, but to keep the the example of the guy whose whole gimmick was uh, a pure athlete uh, would be Bob Roop was like mm-hmm. that. Uh, Kim Patera was like that. You know, both of them had baby baby face in him, and then to stay in the Sy- Syracuse, Mike Rotunda. Mm-hmm. Whether Mike Rotunda was until he became IRS, 
he was either the baby face captain of the football squad at Syracuse or he was the the dastardly heel, you know, top top gun for the varsity club. It was the same care, same character. Right. They never downplayed his athletic amateur background at Syracuse. It just like you said, just change the promo. <laughs> right. yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I've seen these, these wonderful the Ken Patera example. I've seen these wonderful promos of Ken Patera where he would be, you know, in his trophy room showing you all these medals he had won for weightlifting and for track, talking down to the fans. Fast forward, you know, eight years later, and he's doing the rah rah promo like you're talking about. You know, I, I wouldn't be anywhere without the fans. Y'all supported me, you know, through my injury and, and, and these medals. You won these medals as much as I did. Not hard to do, especially when you're that good an athlete, you know? So Dick Byer comes in, meets with Jules Strongbow, and that's when he learns that Jules has booked him as a masked heel under the name Destroyer. And at this point, Byer hated the idea. You know, he refused to do it. He, you know, he was a sports star. That's what got him over. He didn't want to use a different gimmick. And whether it was Strongbow or whether it was Blassie, this is one of those things, depending on where you look, somebody else is going to take the credit or give the credit. So I'm not really sure who it was that eventually was able to convince him, but he mm-hmm. agreed to be the destroyer. Now, the first night he wrestled Seymour Koenig in San Bernardino. And according to Dave Meltzer, there were 773 fans in attendance. And that's a number we're going to want to remember for later. Okay. And Bayer found the mask uncomfortable, difficult to work with, restricted his vision, his, his movement. And after the match, he went backstage and said he's, he's never wearing a mask again. I can, I can tell you this is a guy who's wrestled under a mask. You can't see or breathe in them. And they are hot. <laughs> they are so I, I can hot. believe that, yeah. I mean, the closest I've come is, you know, Halloween. And, you know, a lot of times you take off the Halloween mask and all of a sudden it's like you're breathing again for the first time. And especially those old school ones that Dick would have worn that were made out of wool and not Lycra, you know, and, and, and oh, I can't even imagine. And, and speaking of masks, I can see some of, of his reluctance because you have to understand at that point in time, there weren't many pushed mask wrestlers this is pre-wrestling one and two this is pre-spoiler pre-mask superstar the only guys that wore masks were luchadors and like these one-off jobber guys you know you might have like the texas hangman or dr x or something like that that was a guy that was wrestling in like the second match against the guy you just brought in the territory you were wanting to push so you get him over to the crowd by having him beat up some unnamed and it was usually a a veteran that they could just throw a mask on him, call him some stupid little silly name. He'd go out there and make the guy look good. And then the crowd would never see this mask wrestler again, you know? So the idea of, Oh, you're going to put a mask on me, but yet push me. That had to be unusual, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So now another wrestler backstage and it was somebody, I believe Dick Byer knew from Texas. Uh, he went under the name Ox Anderson and mm-hmm. Ox gave him a more proper wrestling mask. And it was much more comfortable, didn't restrict the movement. And Dick, after being told, essentially, by Jewel Strongbow that I've already booked you for four weeks as, as the Destroyer, you know, you know he, he had kind of already agreed to uh, work for a month. And then after one day, he was already kind of going back on the deal. Once he got this new mask, he's like, okay, well, w- w- we'll try it. And then he and Jules basically said, after that month, you know, you're, you're free to do what you want. So, over the next few weeks, Destroyer wrestles matches. He's got his more comfortable mask on. 
uh, he'd have a notable opponent. Funny that you mentioned the Mr. Wrestling's because one of his notable opponents was a young Johnny Walker uh, before <laughs> putting the mask Classic on. Classic man. Classic <laughs> yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, and that that was uh, that, that was Mr. Wrestling uh, one, right? One, Mr. Wrestling one, who yeah. was at, working in Hawaii a lot at the time, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where they cross paths. Is that what yeah. your information is telling you? Right, right, a- absolutely. So yeah, now as the destroyer. And being the heel and all the boast, boastful claims, you know, people not able to break his figure for and such. And now all of a sudden, he's making more money than he ever did in wrestling before. And after that month, he went and told Jules Strongbow, okay, I'm, I'm going to continue wearing the mask. So as the Destroyer, uh, Dick Byer would have refused to be introduced as the Destroyer. This Again, going to kind of the, the whole babyface heel gimmicks. There were times where he would refuse to wrestle unless the ring announcer introduced him as the sensational intelligent destroyer. And nobody could escape his <laughs> figure four. Nobody could unmask him. And if somebody did manage to get out of the hold, he'd have an out. He'd say, well, he hadn't fully applied it yet. And if somebody tried to unmask him, he'd have a second mask on underneath. And so now, in one of these events, now granted it was a bigger event in a, in a different city, but now after eight weeks... Dick Byers wrestling in the mains or semi-main events to 10,000 people. From 773. Yes, yes. <laughs> so now we're getting to the point where there's masks, T-shirts, and, and all that stuff. This is around the time a young Mike Tanay probably saw Dick Byers for the first time. Yeah, you know, I, I, I admit I, I majored in English and music for a reason, to take as few math classes as I had, I could. Even I could figure <laughs> that arithmetic out. That's and right. of course, as a former wrestler myself, understanding you got paid off the gate and your placement on the card. Okay, you work on these shows and you're moving up the card at the same time. Uh, I just see a lot of green. I just leave that. Right, right. I'm I'm thinking bottom line for brother. That's what I'm. Thinking. Yeah, he, yeah, nice. Right, right. So around this time, Freddie Blassie defeats the top babyface in the WWE at the time, Ricky Dozen, and that's a name we're going to hear again as we go on here. July 25th, 1962, Blassie wins his second WWE title. Now, this was done in real life because Ricky Dozan was a international superstar. He was absolutely gigantic in Japan. So he was traveling back to Japan and needed to drop the belt. I mean, that, that's the real-life explanation. Right. But a mere two days later, Destroyer submits Freddie Blassie with the figure four to win the title and would go on to hold the title for 10 months. Faced guys like Dick Hutton, Lou Thez, Giant Baba, Ricky Dozen came back, tried to win the title, and it was May of 1963, so May of the following year, where Blassie would finally get him get get the belt back. So this is like right before Vince Senior broke away and created the WWF. This is the exactly. era we're talking about, right? Right, because that was like what August or fall of 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 63 when that happened yeah yeah i think it was august or september of 63 so at this point they were probably still called capital probably yeah and they were definitely still a member of the nwa because their leavings what precipitated creating the new company so over the next few years we got the success in california his success in hawaii now the destroyer traveled to japan to wrestle again and despite losing the title to Blassie, he was still billed as the WWE champion because, you know, no internet back in those days. And uh-huh. Oh, and K-Fabe could actually be kept. <laughs> yes, yes. In this tour again, he faced guys like Baba, Ricky Dozan, and such. And so he challenges Ricky Dozan 
for that title. I, I don't think he was the champion again at this point. So I think Ricky was fighting for a title that Destroyer didn't didn't hold. But that's irrelevant when you realize that this match on TV was watched by approximately 70, 70 million people. And to this day, it's one of the most broad, uh, watched broadcasts of all time, let alone wrestling matches. And so we're talking more people than saw Hogan and Andre 25 mm-hmm. years later on, on NBC in primetime. So that it's pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. We're literally talking, you know, American Idol numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's only three, there's only three networks back then. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that's really where the Destroyer truly became that international superstar. And according to Dave Meltzer, I believe the word destroyer got incorporated into the Japanese language because of, of Dick Beyer. So, wow. You know, if you go watch the classic 96, 97 uh, Godzilla movie, Godzilla versus Destroya, it's like, oh, wow, now I know where the name destroyer came from. Okay. <laughs> and, and you're talking like the anglicized word destroyer, not like some Japanese translation, the actual word destroyer. Wow. Wow. That, that's culturally impactful, I'd, I'd, I'd say. I, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, summer of 1963, Jules Strongbow now believes the time had come for the Destroyer to be unmasked. So, we're well over a year <laughs> later. And now, things have completely changed. Dick Beyer, on the other hand, he was now vehemently against getting unmasked, even though he didn't want to wear the mask in the first place. And it's easy to see why. He's making a ton of money now what i always say about don't rat on brothers merch don't i always say that right right and you know the gimmick was still drawing well but in the end strongbow booked destroyer against hercules cortez in a lumberjack match for august of 63 mask on the line and i don't know much about hercules cortez but what i read really wasn't that complimentary you know it's not like this was luthez or something like that this is somebody who probably wasn't as high on the card as you would think to unmask a superstar. Now, these stories are really not uncommon, I think, in these these classic days, in these you know black and white days, if you want to call it. Obviously, Dick Byer did not want to be unmasked. And Strongbow, thinking he has the checkmate, you might say, by having the lumberjacks around the ring so he can't run away, well, Dick Byer tumbles through the ropes and acts like he has injured his hip or his knee or something to that effect. And so the other wrestlers are trying to see if he's okay, and they're concerned about the match or something to that effect. So once the clearing is made in this confusion, Dick Byer is still in a mask, gets up, sprints to the back locker room. He already had a getaway car waiting, and he he, he bolted off. He he walked out on Jewel Strongbow, and that's that's a pretty amazing story. It's, you know, for, I mean, it's nothing you'd see now, but in those days... I mean, I think everybody's probably heard at least stories similar to that, right? Yeah, he worked to boys. <laughs> wow. And, 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 and for those of you who think you understand what the term swerve means, he just swerved the boys and, and, the, and the promoter. <laughs> right, right. Now, it's also worth mentioning that before this match, Dick called up Don Owen in, in Portland, Oregon, finally agreed to fulfill his promise to work for Don Orr in Portland, and now he can do it still as the Destroyer. So, sure, because he's still got his mask. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So he moved up to Portland. He held that Pacific Northwest title, faced guys like Mad Dog Vashon, Dan- Danny Hodge, and it really 
wasn't more than a few months later that Jules Strongbow tracked him down, called him again, apologized, admitted that he was wrong. Again, you said before wow. about, you know, promoters, how many promoters are going to admit they're wrong, you know? Yeah, I was, I was getting ready to make the point that it's shocking he didn't get blackballed after that. But right. if, if Jules ate a little crow, that's probably why, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So he he also agreed that in hindsight it was a bad idea to, to lose the mask. So they kind of make up. And in November of 1963, and obviously for America, November 1963, you know, infamous because that's the month uh, President Kennedy was killed. He was shot, yeah. yeah. The Destroyer is back in Japan. This is really where tragedy strikes. Anybody who knows the story of Ricky Dozen knows what happened next. Destroyer faced Ricky Dozen again, high-profile matches, and drew a lot of money. They were legit real friends in real life, despite Ricky Dozen being a big baby face and Destroyer being a big heel. They they were friends. And Ricky Dozen asked Dick Byer to stay for a day or two. You know, we can have some parties, have fun, you know. And Destroyer, he just wanted to go home. I believe he had started his family by this point, And he wanted to see his family, you know, was, was missing home. Refused to to stick around, boarded a plane, headed for home. And I'm sure you know the next chapter in the story here, Train. Sure, go ahead. (laughs) Now, to give you an idea of the stature of Dick Beyer at this point, he was actually late getting to his plane. Whether that was because of the match or the talking with, with Ricky or such, he was actually late getting to the plane, and the plane waited for him because he was such a big star that the plane wasn't going to leave without him. I mean, that, that that's pretty amazing when you think about it. And by the time Dick got home, uh, got settled into his, his house, uh, he got the phone call that Ricky Dozen had been stabbed in, in a nightclub in, in Japan. And it was approximately one week later that Ricky Dozen passed, passed away from the injuries. He got an infection, I think. We, we, when we do a Ricky Dozen... Show what well, we yes. can go into more detail. Yeah, I, believe was, I believe it was sepsis was actually what the official. I could be wrong, right? Uh, right. But I believe sepsis is what the autopsy said, wasn't it? Was the yeah. the, the the meaning the cause of and of course sepsis is a is an infection which you would right. have got. You get stabbed. There's a strong possibility of an infection. Right. Right. Nowadays, obviously, if you're uh, tended to quickly enough, it, it's not as big of a deal. But we're we're talking, you know, almost sixty years ago here. So you know. Medical technology wasn't what it is now. Less so, the blade of the uh, less the blade of the knife is wiped with pig intestines and fat, and you get an infection. But that's a black Jack Mulligan story for another time that I'll tell you about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm sure some of our listeners know what I'm on what I'm referring to. But we're talking about Dick Byer and Ricky Dose and not Blackjack. Though Blackjack right. is worthy any time of being mentioned on classic wrestling <laughs> memories. Right now, it's easy to see that Dick Byer took this news very hard because had he stayed around that extra day, you know, Ricky probably wouldn't have gotten stabbed. Now it's very possible he might've gotten stabbed later down the road, but it's totally understandable to see why somebody would blame themselves for this, because if he was there, he probably would have stopped it or it might not have even happened in the first place. Yeah. I I think I've heard, uh, you know, and it's how can you know, unless you heard that come out of the man's mouth himself. But I think I've heard people, either intimate they heard it from Dick Byer or something that there was some guilt there. He felt like, well, if I was there, this wouldn't have happened. You know, he's got to had his back. And I, I don't think I'm a tough as, as Ricky Dozen and, and Dick Byer, but I consider myself somewhat of a tough guy. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got more fights in high school 
defending my friend who was one of the smallest guys in our class, who was not a bad guy. Just he had a tendency to say things because he was an intelligent individual to individuals who a weren't bright and b impaired. And you know where that usually leads. So yeah, I get I I get get the thinking you can have your friends back thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So shortly after this, Jules Strongbow calls Dick Byer again. And he agrees to go back to California, had another run with the WWE title. Now, uh, here is kind of the next phase, you might say. This is probably the last big run, you might you might say. After Destroyer has another run in WWE, wins the title again, uh, he got the superstar treatment in California, in Japan. And around this time, Vern Gagne, uh, owner and promoter of AWA, he approaches Dick Byer to work for him now. So we're moving into a completely different territory here. Here's, but here's where it gets strange. Ganya offered Dick Byer a top heel run in the territory, but the catch is he wouldn't be the destroyer. Vern Ganya already knew that Dick Byer was the destroyer. Mm-hmm. And so he assumed it's almost kind of like a Vince McMahon type thing here. Probably the only time you're going to hear, you know, Vern Gagne or, uh, compared to Vince McMahon, but he thought, well, if he knows it, then everybody else knows it. And of course, virtually nobody did. There, There's an actual story. In Japan and right. on the West Coast. Right. right. In right. Hawaii. Right. But there was a story, of this was probably a year or two earlier, of a fan that saw the Destroyer get into a car after the California show, saw it was New York plates, jotted down the number, contacted the New York DMV, Asked who this was registered to, and that's how he got the name Dick Byer. But that's oh, you smart, soon. you smart marks haven't changed that much, have you? <laughs> right, right. Now, when that fan approached him, saying he knew who he was, Dick Byer came clean about it and just said, "Well, let's let's just not not tell anybody." You know, back in those days, pulling something like that would you know probably get something broken. But right. <laughs> you know, well, and Dick's thinking if this gets out. I could beat the dude up, but my career might be over. At least my money drawing. That's what he's thinking, you know, right, my right. money drawing potential. And back to the, you know, he's one of the first guys to have merch because he built in with the hood. You take my hood away. You're hurt my pocketbook. I mean, right. these are all the things I'm sure it's going through the man's mind. We'll be going through my mind, mm-hmm. you know, so. Right. But still, Ganya wanted a mask. It just wouldn't be the destroyer mask. He figured if the character was renamed Dr. X, Nobody would put two and two together, even though people like Martinet right. did. To Byer's credit here, since he was told that he was going to be a different person, he furthered that gimmick by changing his style. He went to a brawling style as Dr. X instead of the scientific holds and takedown style that he had as the Destroyer. So I think you know he deserves credit for that. He's like, well, if I'm going to be somebody different, I'm going to be somebody different. Yeah. And, you know, and you saying him, you know, you, you saying Vern wanted him to be Dick Byer. If you know anything about the AWA and Vern, Vern Ganya's booking style and how he liked to run that territory. Are we, are you shocked that he wanted this great athlete with a great amateur background to be himself in his company? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that was, I mean, that, yeah, that's, is that not, that's, that's Vern Ganya booking 101, you know? Right, right. So the destroyer is now Dr. X. And in the AWA, he would fight top baby faces. Some names people who are familiar with the AWA will probably recognize right off the bat. People like Bruiser, Crusher, uh, the Mighty Igor. And he even beat Ganya for the AWA title in 1968. And now we're getting 
Wrestling magazines had ads for Dr. X, masks, T-shirts, because Vern, in his day, was a very good marketer. And, oh, yeah. you know, there's that infamous picture of Debbie Harry in the, the prime of Blondie days, and she's sporting a Dr. X T-shirt you know, in the 70s. So that's kind of how mainstream his popularity had become. Right. Right. So this successful run in the AWA, this puts Dick Beyer in a very elite category because by the time 1970 early 70s rolled around dick buyer you know destroyer dr x he basically achieved all the success you could expect because at this time there were five titles that were looked at as being world titles there was the awa title which he'd recently run the wwa title because it was recognized in japan the the iwa title and I don't know if he had won the Japanese Wrestling Association, the JWA title, by by that point. But that only leaves two titles left that he had not won that were considered world title category. Title. Mm-hmm. And that is the NWA world title and the WWWF title. The title is now recognized as the WWE title. And both of those people, as we mentioned earlier, you know, Vince Sr., uh, would probably not put their world title on a mask man. Obviously, that changed years later with Mysterio, but or a heel for that matter. Right, exactly. Yeah. And once again, this is not a knock on Dick Buyer. We talked about this in our earlier episode about Bruno. Why would you take the the title off of off of your your cash cow, which is what Bruno was at that point? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Bruno was packing them in. There was unless unless something tr- bad happened. You'd be a fool to take the belt off of Bruno at that point. At least that's my opinion. I think most wrestling historians would agree with me, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And now the NWA also at that time had a rule that the NWA world champion couldn't be masked. And that's probably to help avoid situations where maybe somebody else is actually under the mask while being billed as the NWA champion. I'm not saying that would have happened, but that might have been the philosophy. You know, the masked wrestler, are you really getting the right guy? You know? Exactly. Right. Now, in the 2000s, they had uh, relaxed on that rule because be, uh, Blue Demon Jr. was the, the first masked NWA world champion. But that was in the early 2000s. So, right, you know, 35 right. years later. Right. So, by the end of the AWA run, uh, Dick agreed to unmask Dr. X. I believe it was Blackjack Lanza. He had uh, lost his is a mask match with. So Dr. X, I say that in quotes, took off his mask, revealed his name to be Bruce Marshall, which was a, you know, completely made up name. And because, you know, he's not going to say he's Dick Byer, the destroyer that, that just wouldn't make sense. So, you know, he left the territory. That was his swan song for the AWA. And, you know, as they say, do business on your way out. Perfect example of that. You know, am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he's made all this money. He's got this international superstardom. He's got this clout. He still can technically be the destroyer because the destroyer was never unmasked. And we were still in that phase where he could deny being Dr. X. This is really a fun part, in my opinion, of the story of Dick Byer, because this to me is a perfect example of living the American dream. You know, he's got a family. He's made a good amount of money. So what he did is he hired somebody to build a custom wrestling title belt that he would claim to be a title that he won and is defending around the country. So he took his family and his family traveled with him 
He went to places like Mexico, Japan, Australia, Europe, places that he had clout to get himself booked in because of the Destroyer. I think that's a heck of a fun thing to do. You know, after you've done all that work, I think it's fair to call it an American Dream type thing where you just take your family, go sure. all over the world, see the world, and you're getting paid to do it on top of that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it, it's um, you're getting paid, you're doing something you love, but unlike everybody else in your chosen profession, you're not having to leave the family behind. It's like, <laughs> I, I think I've told this story before, uh, something that Robert Fuller or you know, Colonel Rob Parker, whatever our listeners want to refer to him as, you know, he, the, the advice he gave me when I first broke into the business was, you know, travel, find a place you like that has good schools, get you the house, apartment, whatever, live there. When you go out on the road, send all your money home and live like a hermit. Mm-hmm. That was the standard protocol for people of that era. He wasn't doing that, though. It's pretty awesome, you know? So this is really kind of the entering the twilight of the career of the Destroyer. You know, he's touring the world. He's got his family with him. He kind of works where he wants to work, probably still getting paid quite well. As the saying goes, he was essentially being his own boss because with his clout, he could get booked on his terms. You know, it wasn't on the promoter's terms, so he could could do that. And after essentially retiring, I think he did wrestle some matches in, in the 80s, but he returned home and spent for the most part, the rest of his life as a teacher and as a sports coach. And there's a really funny story to me that that's a recurring story every year. Obviously, it doesn't happen anymore because he passed, but Mm -hmm. Cauliflower Alley Club. And we've talked about that before, that that is definitely a major sign of respect. You know, whenever we talk about the WWE Hall of Fame or something like that, Cauliflower Alley Club, you have to genuinely be one of the best in your field to get recognized. It's, It's a very exclusive club and Mike Tanay would actually do a lot of speaking at these you know maybe playing MC or something to that effect and this to me is a perfect example of old-time wrestling selling you might say because the recurring gag is Mike Tanay would would get up welcome everybody and address the gathering saying how much of a privilege it would be how much of a privilege it is to have the greatest masked wrestler of all time in the world with us tonight and destroyer who'd be wearing his mask he he might stand up puff out his chest or smile and grin and all that and then today would say and mil mascaris will be joining us shortly and destroyer, <laughs> destroyer gets angry sits back down and sulks <laughs> you know right <laughs> happened every year for many years and it never got old it was always a great punchline <laughs> exactly yeah that's pretty much the story of of the destroyer and those three eras that I like to talk about here and because it was the ones I had the most fun researching, quite frankly, that time in Hawaii, mm-hmm. the run in California and Portland, and then that, that run in Japan. And his AWA title run is, is noteworthy because of that, you know, being a masked man and such like that. And you, like you said before, you don't get hired in AWA if Vern doesn't respect you from a, from an right. athlete's perspective. So, yeah, I remember he, he, he wasn't that happy with Hogan and, and Warrior, the Road Warriors because they weren't uh, as amateur background as he'd like and how that work out how the, how those three guys do it drawing money i'm just saying no that's not a rag on Vern. it just is what it is right right exactly so uh anything else you wanted to add as far as destroyer goes i mean i know you said we're, we're kind of the same here we never really saw his work when he was I, at his peak 
there was one story I found fascinating, and, I, and I, it's been so long since I read it, I can't remember if it, if it even was Dick Byer, but I'm pretty sure it was. And it might have been an Observer story. It might have been, heck, it might have been a story that Lillian told me, Moolah. Um, I believe he was the first mass wrestler after a long time to wrestle at Madison Square Garden because the Athletic Commission in New York was heavily involved in wrestling for a long time. And I think they had had some mass wrestlers early in the day, like, you know, in the 20s or 30s. And then the, 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 you know, the commission got involved and they said no mass wrestlers. But then Dick came there to wrestle, uh, but he was doing the mass gimmick. But by that point, everybody knew he was Dick Byers. So he wrestled like in a semi-main event, but he and he wore the mask, but they had to come to a compromise. So he essentially wore the front of the mask pulled up. So you could see his face. <laughs> it, was, it was almost like, like just covered like the back, like almost like a, a yarmulke, I guess, just covered the top of his head, you know. And if I'm wrong, and our listeners, please let us know in the comments or email us. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I just, I just think, you know, that's kind of cool, kind of mm-hmm. strange that we'd have to do that. But it's still, you're in the record books. You're the first masked wrestler the uh, new, you know, New York Athletic Commission let wrestle Matt Square Garden with a mask on, albeit with the face part pulled up. But you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember hearing Dave Meltzer talk about this because he actually went to Japan for a while. And mm, I think shocker, he, shocker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and obviously it wasn't when he was at the Tokyo Dome because before he passed, but he had talked to the people he knew from Japan, and it was amazing how much press his passing got because of the amount of superstardom he had. And Japan is very much a country of tradition and, you know, honoring people from the past. So his passing was front page headline news for like several days, you know, you know, probably even more so to give an American example than like say a rock star or, you know, a president passing or or something to that effect. It's like, it was probably more heavily circulated than that. And I think that's pretty amazing uh, given the amount of time that had passed. I mean, we're talking, 45 years since he wrestled a, a match in Japan and he still gets honors like that. I, I think that's pretty darn impressive. Oh yeah. I think it's a, it's a statement on one, how different, you know, Japanese wrestling fans are culturally speaking to Americans. But I also think it, it speaks to, and I know this is weird for me to say this because we live in an era where the, the biggest grossing action movie star is a former wrestler in the rock. But when you think about people like Dick Byer, when you think about people like Gorgeous George, even though he died penniless, um, uh, guys like like uh, El Santo in Mexico, I don't think there will ever have a time again where guys are that mainstream that were pro wrestlers. Do you? Certainly not while they're still in the ring. I mean, The Rock is probably the best example, and that's because of his superstardom in movies, not because of his time as a wrestler. Right. I mean, this is no disrespect to Hogan or to people that, you know, have had mainstream crossover. They just are not. I mean, like you said, the amount of Dave, some of the amount of coverage when Dick Byer passed and he hadn't been in the ring in Japan in what, 30 years. Right. You know, El Santo had long been retired and I, I, I can't remember the insane number of people that showed up at his public memorial service. It's that kind of stuff to say ain't going to happen no more. I don't think. And, and it's, it's sad, but kind of cool at the same time. All right. This is going to bring us to the end of volume 28 of classic wrestling memories. I am of course, Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax. We are at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. You can comment on this show or any of our shows at the website because we 
have a plug-in for Facebook. So if you have Facebook, you can actually go to our website and comment on that. The main Facebook page is Behind the Squared Circle, and the Twitter is TWB, TWBP Show, if you want to interact with us there. And I guess really the only other thing that I could mention uh, about Dick Beyer is, you know, like, like Tanae said, you know, he's the example of you want to meet your heroes. I had an opening that I put in the show notes here, classicwrestlingmemories.com. I put that, you know, there's wrestlers and then there are champions. You could say there's champions and then there are legends. And then there's legends and there's people like the Destroyer Dick Beyer. I think that's a fair assessment of his career given what, what he accomplished. And, you know, merchandising, you know, masks, shirts and such. That he was, if he wasn't the first, he was one of the first people to do that. And that's something that is a main part of wrestling to this day. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think pioneer is is a word I would use to describe Dick Beyer because yeah. of the merchandising, because of, uh, I, I mean, I'm sitting here talking about earlier, he was the, the prototype of the guy with the amateur background for that era, but he was also a pioneer. You know, like I said, a masked, a, a masked wrestler, uh, merchandise, a masked wrestler who was pushed as a top guy. Um, uh, a white guy, a non-Japanese guy going over and having success in Japan and getting over with the fans. And, and just through just, if you understand the Japanese culture, just by showing up and putting, being honorable and putting up a good fight, they eventually turned him babyface. much. I mean, I guess, I guess a great example current, you know, modern would be like stone cold or the undertaker, probably how they mm-hmm. were despised heels, but eventually the fans just turned and that's, it is what it is. So pioneers would be a way I would describe them. Yes, agreed. All right, we're going to wrap things up here at Classic Wrestling Memories. Thank you, folks, for listening. Find us on Apple Podcasts. If you do a search for the name Classic Wrestling Memories, and there are subscription links in the website, classicwrestlingmemories.com. Give us a review, subscribe, let us know what we're doing well, let us know what we're not doing well, because I always say, and I mean it, that I'm looking for ways to improve this show. So I accept any feedback, especially if it's genuine. And Train, if people want to talk to you about Classic Wrestling Memories or anything else, where can they find you? Always can find me on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. Thank you, folks, for listening. We'll talk to you folks again next time at Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.